Welcome to Rough Drafts, How God Writes His Love in Our Stories, a podcast that explores the faith journeys of our friends and neighbors in Burns, Tennessee. Everyone has a story to tell, and in this podcast, we'll hear powerful and inspiring stories of how God works in the ordinary lives of people like you and me. Our stories are unfinished and perfectly imperfect. They are just rough drafts, a glimpse of what is to come because God is still at work, writing plot twists, introducing new characters, and bringing good even from the most challenging circumstances. Join us as we see what God is up to in our stories. Here's your host, Matthew Hyatt. Today's guest is extra special. I don't know that I remember the first time that I met him. Our circles have overlapped literally my whole life. He, he preached at the church my parents were at when I was too little to remember. And since I started preaching, he's been one of my preaching mentors and preaching heroes. Uh, he is known for his his rules and his contracts, and they're really good. Uh, he has done so much to encourage me. In fact, the two longest bicycle rides of my life have been with him on the Natchez Trace Parkway. I think he was on a, a six-speed hub shifter. And I was on a mountain bike, and we decided that riding 50 miles on the parkway sounded like a great idea. Today is my barefoot running friend, Jerry Barber. Jerry, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate what you're doing, and I count an honor to be with you today. Man, this I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I was hoping you'd—I wanted to ask you sooner, but you were off doing interim work in another state, and now you're back— yeah, we're unemployed intentionally. <laughs> That's the best way to be unemployed. We're taking some time off, and so I do things like this. Gail's promoting her book. And well, well, tell me about that. Well, Gail, Gail came out with a book about a year ago. In fact, today is the fourth year ago today. Oh, how cool. It came out on Amazon. It's called Fleecy Clouds, One Woman's Story of Surviving and Thriving After Childhood Abuse. Uh, Her mother died when she was five. She went to an aunt's house, which didn't work out well at all. Uh, She went to her grandmother's house, which worked out worse because she beat her and her brother till the state took them away. And then she went to a couple of foster homes, which were good, but then they were just holding them until Child Haven became available, children's home in uh, Cullman, Alabama. And it was wonderful. She was there uh, 13 years until we married. And uh, then in her 40s, those memories came back to haunt her. She was having nightmares and really having a hard time. Thankfully, James Jones was in our building on Monday, she started going to him for counseling. She went about a year, and part of her therapy was writing her life story, and she's wrote it on spiral notebooks. James read it and said, this is good. I want to publish this, and she said, I'm not ready. Well, first she said, uh, another thing that came up at the end of this year uh, she said, James, I really appreciate what you've done, and I never want to talk about it again. Uh-huh. And he paused and said, Gail, it would be a shame for you to waste all that pain. Oh, wow. And so he worked with her more on how and when and who to tell her story. And so she's been telling her story ever since. 
About three years ago, we were talking. I said, Gail, if you're ever going to publish, it's getting about time. You're coming up on 80 years old. Yeah. So we got a ghostwriter, Alice Sullivan, who started working with her, read what she had written, and did hours and hours of interviews and came up with the book, and it's excellent. Oh, man. I can't wait to read it. I've, I've seen you share about it on Facebook. Yep. Uh, and I've seen those posts, and I just... I just happen to have one in the car that I'll give you when we get through well, today. I want for you. I want to support her good work. So, um, and where do people go if they want to get it? Amazon? Amazon. Okay. Yep. Fleecy Clouds, Gale Champion, Barber. Well, I have a million questions I want to ask. Okay. I just kind of want to say what's your story and see where you take us. So, Jerry, what's your story? All right. Grew up in Centerville, Tennessee. Uh, only child. Mother had nine sisters and three brothers, and Daddy had seven sisters and a brother, and they had one. Uh, It was happy. Uh, Went to Centerville Elementary, Hickman County High School, graduated in 1963. Uh, Just wonderful neighbors, church. I still call it the Holy Land. I Mm -hmm. tell people when I go back, we went uh, a week ago Sunday to Centerville Church, and I said, you know, we're going to the Holy Land. Jerry, only you could call Keg County Holy Land. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's some good stories about that, but that'd be for somebody else another time. But I grew up there, went to Freed Hardeman, started preaching when I was 16. A next-door neighbor worked for the National Guard, and was also our preacher. Daddy was a wonderful man, but he didn't like hunting or fishing. He took me hunting one time, fishing one time, and had rather been at home both Well, really, rather been working both days. But Ward loved it, and he took me often. And so one day in the winter of 1961, he said, when I go to camp in the summer, National Guard camp, we shouldn't have to pay preachers. You'd preach one Sunday night, wouldn't you? And he nodded his head. And, you know, everybody takes you hunting and fish. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Well, a couple of months later, he said, how's your sermon coming? I said, I've thought about it. And he said, come on over and I'll help you. So he helped me prepare it. His wife typed the outline. I preached that Sunday night, June 18. And next month, Lower Sulphur Church invited me, Daddy's home church, and... uh they say, would you come back once a month? And I did. And then there was Wolf Creek and Defeated Creek and all of those metropolitan churches in Hickman County. I have always thought Defeated Creek was maybe the worst name for a church I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so went to Freed Hardeman, majored in elementary education. Really? Yep. Uh, my goal was to be an elementary teacher, elementary principal, preach on Sundays, and my daddy was a carpenter, so I figured I'd build a house every summer to support my other two habits. <laughs> uh, met Gail. We got married right before my second year. And uh, I was making $65 a month preaching at those three churches. And we were going to pay rent, buy groceries, and all of that. Two days before we got married, I went to a church in Corinth, Mississippi, and after Sunday morning sermon, they met with me that afternoon and said, we'd like for you to come be our preacher. We want you here Sunday morning for a Bible class, preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, come back Wednesday night. I said, yeah, I'd be glad to do that. I was in school at Freed Hardeman, about a 30-mile 30, 30 drive. 
And they said, how much money? I said, I've never talked about money. I'm not going to start now. I've since changed that rule, but that was... <laughs> that was the rule at the time. <laughs> that was the rule at the time. So they hee-hawed about it, and finally they said, well, why don't you just go ahead and get married on Tuesday? People ask, why'd you get married on Tuesday? If you're making $65 a month, you can't miss a Sunday. you got to be back by Sunday. Right. So there was rehearsal Monday night. Marriage Tuesday afternoon at 5 o'clock, go to the Smoky Mountains and be back by Sunday. So they said, just go ahead and we'll tell you when you get back. And the preacher who had been there said, you're not going to treat this young man that way. Anybody who can stand up for 30 minutes two days before he gets married ought to know, tell him what you're going to pay him. And while they're on the honeymoon, they'd be working on their budget. So they rehearsed again their expectations and said, do you think you could do that for... $75 a week. And I said, I'll do the best I can. Yeah. <laughs> and we were able to save $200 that first year. Yeah. So anyhow, that's it. Preached at other Wrigley in Hickman County and uh, several other churches uh, during college days, then went to Yorkville, Tennessee, and other places since then. Where's Yorkville? Yorkville's in Gibson County. Oh, okay. Princeton, uh, Dyer and Rutherford and... Trenton. Yeah, I, I just not area. I knew I'd heard the name. I just couldn't yep. land it. Well, you've been a lot of places since then. Yep, we've done five full time and ten interim. Where were the five fulls? Uh, Yorkville, Madisonville, Kentucky, Dalton, Georgia, Bears Chapel, and Franklin. That was my last and longest fourteen years, and then ten interims. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yep. So, how did you decide to do interim ministry? Well, I I don't know. might have been some before, but if not before, just as soon as we were married, we started talking about what we are going to do when we retired. Retirement was not quitting work, but changing gears. Yeah. All I knew that you could do if you wasn't a full-time preacher is hold gospel meetings and workshops. So I said, we'll just go all over the country holding meetings. That'll be fun. We'd talk about it just there once in a while. Somewhere 10 or 15 years after that first conversation, Gail said, Jerry, you know, when you hold a meeting, you do a good job. But think about it. When you preach somewhere Sunday to Wednesday, 10 years later, what do they remember? And then she answered the question, not much. I thought that was encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) You know, your wife has always been honest. Yeah. (laughs) She said, what I would like to do is go and stay a while. And she thought of Yorkville. She said, we, we've we learned so much since we were there. And I'd like to go by and work with them for a year or six months or a year. I wouldn't want to stay there the rest of my life. Yeah. You could teach leadership classes. I could teach ladies' classes and children's classes. I said, well, yeah, that'd be fun. I don't know how you'd do something like that. And so we just kind of dropped it. When I moved to Nashville... At that time, my habit was to shave with uh, tapes. Okay. I'd go to the library and pick up ta- book tapes, tapes of books, and then any lectureships or anything. I was listening to a series on divorce by Gail Napier. Okay. One of my rules is try not to learn very much. Here's my sum total. If I remember, there were seven lessons. Here's the only thing I remember. He said, if you get a divorce and think you could, shouldn't want to get married again, you probably ought to wait at least two years or you'll have more people in the bed than you can sleep with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see why you remembered that. Yeah. yeah. And I said, that's it. 
That's it. That is exactly what we do with preachers. A preacher stays 15 or 20 years. What most people want, let's have his going away party this Sunday. Let's hope the elders are wise enough to get on the ball and have somebody there the next Sunday. We won't have any downtime. Yeah. And then wonder, why doesn't everybody like our new preacher? Yeah, what have you called the new guy, the, the sacrificial lamb? Yeah, unintentional interim. The unintentional interim, because there's so many stories of oh, it happens. follow a guy. That's the rule. There are exceptions. Yeah. But that's the rule. Uh, I was fortunate here yes. to not follow that, but it was because James Hinkle yes. followed your plan. I mean, before before I left, he prepared the church for a year for that's, that. That's the way you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, people started telling me I need to write a book on interim ministry when it's, because at that time, very, very few people in Churches of Christ had even heard of it, much yeah. less doing it. And I said, I ain't got time. But somewhere I ran into a book called How to Blog a Book. Huh. I'd already started a New Shepherd's Orientation blog. And I thought, I ain't got time to write a book, but I could write 500 words every two weeks. So I outlined a book and started writing a chapter every two weeks and put it in a blog. And when it's finished, did a little editing, and that's the book that came out. Uh, so we padded our—I started telling people then, Yeah. here's what I'm going to do. I'm still 10, 15 years away from retirement. When I retire, I want to go to a church— whose preacher's died or retired or been fired or whatever, he's not there anymore, but he's been there a long time, and say, I want to I work with you while you're looking for a new preacher. I do not want to be your next preacher, yeah. but I'd like to work with you. And people say, wow, wow, man, that's a great idea. Wouldn't that have been good at Madison? Wouldn't yeah. that have been good at Hillsboro? And, and different places yeah. where it just they brought in good men after real good men, and they didn't like the new good men because they weren't like the old good men. Right. And that's the only sin they committed. All the time. Yep. He's just different. Uh, About a year later, after I started advertising by telling everybody that would listen to me what I wanted to do, I I got Leadership Magazine. I read every issue of that magazine. I missed that magazine. Yeah, it was outstanding. good. Good illustrations, good practical stuff. I read about the Interim Ministry Network. Started in 1981. I sent my dues in, started getting their publications. We went to their conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1996. Their second Bible is uh, Generation to Generation by Edwin Friedman, which became my favorite book beside the Bible in my life. Yeah. And uh, I thought, hey, anybody that likes Generation to Generation can't be bad. So... Uh, <laughs> We went for training in 98, 99. John Parker went with us at the same time, and then we started doing it in 2007. Okay. And, man, I, you know, that ministry, is, you can't quantify any ministry. You know, the, the work that you do in any ministry, you never know what seeds yep. you plant and what fruit gets born decades later. But that interim ministry is a ministry that prevents bad things from happening. So it's really hard to tell. It's well, hard to see the fruit sometimes. But I can so I can attest to the value of it because uh, about the time we started working with Interim Ministry Network, I did an unintentional interim. Hmm. I followed a man who had been there for quite some time, yeah. and folks just told me, don't like you. Yeah. Uh, one fellow said nothing personal. I just 
don't think they should have fired the last preacher, and if they fired him, I shouldn't have fired him, they fired him. And I said, well, I understand. It sounds like Daddy, your mother died, and Daddy got married, and you don't like your stepmother. He said, that's it. I yeah. said, I understand. Uh, but, yeah, it it is delightful. We've really enjoyed it. We worked with 10 churches in 16 years. So let's go go back, because I, I've heard you tell some of these stories before, but I think they inform the current story. Uh, ministry has not always been easy. Oh, man, no. Um, and you have described a ministry thing as the most painful day in your life. Yes. All righty, I was in Madisonville, Kentucky. Okay. My first was Yorkville. Stayed there 18 months. Went there to stay the rest of my life, but it didn't work out that yeah. way. Uh, went to Madisonville. Went there for the same deal. And man, numbers, it was the best ministry we ever had. Yeah. We grew every year, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, contribution. We baptized bukus of people. Most of them were not connected with our church. Oh, that's great. Uh, we did baptize our children when they wanted to be. Yeah. But we got we knocked on every door in Madisonville, Kentucky, three times during eight years I was there. Uh, we had a lot of people doing personal work. We built a children's home. Oh, wow. Uh, we built. We expanded our building. The elders asked me to uh, conduct the first meeting. We had a Sunday to Sunday meeting. We had day services. Uh, we we would meet at twelve o'clock. We guarantee they'd be out at twelve forty-five. We'd feed them lunch, and I'd have a fifteen-minute lesson. Uh, they did a whole section of the newspaper. It was just great. Cool ministry. Yeah, good elders. Uh, the Sunday after that meeting, one of our elders uh, led the closing prayer for someone who had come forward, went out in the parking lot, had a heart attack, and died in the emergency room. Oh, wow. And we were devastated. I had no training concept on how to process grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we did what a lot of people do. We just grabbed another elder right quick to replace the one that had died. And on December 19th of that year, I had just taught a Bible class. And uh, one of the elders, the new elder, one of the elders said, Brother Jerry, would you step in the office just a minute? And I said, sure. He said, Brother Jerry, I think you ought to think about resigning today. Well, I checked my notes. I'd been studying all week long. That wasn't anywhere in my notes. (laughs) It never occurred to me. Yeah. One of my models was Ira North. And Ira would say, you know, here's what we're going to do at Madison. Well, all I do is here's what we're going to do at Madisonville. Yeah, you just had to add one syllable. <laughs> yeah, you just had to add one syllable. And Brother North had been there to speak right before I came. and uh, So I was just going to retire there and just spend the rest of my life. Church was growing. It was exciting. It would offend me when somebody would move. Why would they? I mean, so what? You got a promotion making twice you're making now. You're going to have to leave this church, and there's no church as good as this church. That's right. Uh, so he said, I think I'll think about resigning. I walked into the auditorium for the worship. First song we sang is Anywhere is Home. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about appropriate. Yeah. Where in the world am I going to live after this? So I preached my sermon, went home, had lunch, told Gail what had happened, went to a deacon's house and cried most of the afternoon, preached that night, and then started calling 
friend after friend after friend said, I've been fired. I've got to find a place to preach. Uh, so I was devastated, embarrassed, crushed. All my plans were gone of what I, how I wanted to live my life. Uh, just started looking. That was the summer of 76, 77. We did not see the parking lot at Madisonville Church of Christ for 30 days. There was blizzard after blizzard after blizzard it came through. Really? And that's why we were running around trying to find some word to preach. That's a good time to try to get a job. Yeah, it is. Something else happened. After services that morning, I went to the other elder. We only had two. And I said, uh, Robert, when did y'all decide to fire me? He said, what are you talking about? I said, when did y'all decide to fire me? He said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? And I called the other man's name. I said, he told me I ought to think about resigning this morning. He said, well, I hadn't heard anything about it. I said, well, that's the way it was. Yeah. Word got out, and one of the older members called the man who had talked to me and said, I understand you fired Jerry Barber Sunday morning without talking to the other elders. Is that right? He said, yes, sir. He said, well, I can't serve under an elder like you. I think you ought to resign. He said, well, okay. So he resigned next Sunday. All right, now we have no elders. It just worked out every other week I was going somewhere. Boy, I got the word out, and I was just going all over the place yeah. trying to find a job before my time ran out. So on one of those meetings, one of the men said, I understand we're paying no, they asked the question, are you? Are we paying Jerry Barber every Sunday while he's running around all over the country trying to find a job? Do we still pay him the week he's gone? Terry said, yep, we pay him every week. What about that, Jerry? Is that right? I said, well, when I came here, I named the three elders. I said, we agreed that if they asked me to leave or if I decided to leave, I'd have 90 days with pay or until I found a new church, whichever came first. Yeah. Two of those elders had died. The other had resigned, but he was in a meeting. Brother so-and-so, what about that? He paused, scratched his chin, and said, Seemed like I remember us talking about that, but I don't remember what was said. Well, boy, that put me in a bind. Yeah. Which helped me with one of the sayings I have, people who receive money have a better memory than people who are giving money. <laughs> And after a pause after that, the treasurer, who was one of the founding members of that congregation, he said, we've done that with every preacher we've ever had, and we're going to do it with Jerry, too. And the fellow said, okay, I just want to know. And so they did. Well, good for, good for that. This is an aside, and I don't mean to interrupt the story, yep. but some of the things that you have written or republished lately have been the right way to fire ministers. Yes, which, um, as a minister, I, I've not yet been fired. <laughs> maybe you'll do good when you do. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But uh, just the the insight that you have shared with churches trying to do things. I understand that not every minister, sometimes somebody has to get let go. Sure. That has to happen. Some, it doesn't always have to happen. Sometimes ministers get let go to cover up bad elderships. Sometimes bad ministers do bad things and need to get let Whatever. Nope. But... You know, not telling the guy three minutes before he goes to preach. That's that's where the you blog know? came from on the best day to fire a preacher. Yeah. I came up with that rule. Monday night's the best time to fire a preacher. Yeah. Gives you six days to recover before Sunday. Mm -hmm. uh, and honesty. 
yeah. in the process. Don't ask a guy to get up and say he left when you fired him. Yep. Asking a, a minister to lie for you is not good on anybody. Yeah, I've written a lot of blogs about that, and I sometimes feel a little guilty. But, you know, is that the only thing you know to write about? No, but I know a lot about that <laughs> because but, I've been through it and talked to a lot of other people who have. And there's not a lot of people who can write on like I'm grateful that you do because yeah. somebody needs to. When you're unemployed, it's hard to keep you down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love one thing about your approach to ministry. You. I think all of us in ministry say that we, we feel like we can say what we believe is right. Yep. But when you are intentionally unemployed and you move from place to place, you have a freedom. You do. You can kind of say It has you. been delightful. And I enjoyed all my ministry. Mm-hmm. All, all the full time. We have dear friends everywhere we've been. And, of course, that's what we've been doing, going back and visiting, starting yeah. with Yorkville, Tennessee, and all the way up to the that's present. So in another men's meeting— uh, Somebody said, you know what? Jerry's looking for a place to preach, and we're looking for a preacher. And I think Jerry's a good preacher. I make a motion that we hire Jerry Barber as our next full-time preacher. Was where you just got fired? Yeah. Okay. So somebody said, yeah, I'd second that. And so there was a little bit of discussion to vote, and it was however many to two, the one that fired me and one more yeah. voted against it. But I was un- not unanimous, but overwhelmingly rehired. I thought, Phew, got that off my back. Well, as we were leaving, uh, a fellow named John Smith, uh, interesting name. He was yeah. out jogging early one morning, and it was before jogging became popular, and police stopped, and they said, what's your name? And he said, John Smith, and they said, get in the car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> but he was John Smith, and he said, I need to talk to you. So I went to my office, closed the door, and he said, Jerry, uh, I hope you don't stay here and try to save this church. He said, if you do, I think it'll hurt you. I think it'll hurt your family. I think it'll hurt the church. Oh, wow. And said, I love you like a brother. Big old tears rolling down his cheeks. And man, it made me mad. It hurt my feelings. I was fired, and now I'm hired, and now it's nuthead. You're tell- vindicated, and now yeah. you're unvindicated. Yeah, now this fellow. So I just went home aggravated. Yeah. Next morning, I'm jogging. That's when I do my best Bible studies mm-hmm. when I'm jogging. So... I get to reflecting, why in the world would John Smith do that? And I got to reflecting. They had met, moved there probably two or three years before. What has he done ever since he's been here? Well, here's what he's done. Jerry, that was a good sermon Sunday morning. That was a good point you made. Jerry, one of the things that I noticed in your Bible class is it, 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 it is evident that you have really prepared for every lesson. I really appreciate that. Another time he'd say, Jerry, are y'all busy Thursday night? We'd like for you and Gail and Christian and Jerry Wayne to come over, Barbara cook for you, and we just want you to know how much we appreciate yeah. you. And then that had pretty well been the tone ever since. And then last night he tells me, I, I think you ought to leave. I don't think you can handle it. Was he telling me the truth then or last night <laughs> or both? Yeah. And some 40 years later, I think he was right on target. At least the last time. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, so. I mean, I, I can kind of imagine all of the unhealthy things that could have happened in that scenario had you stayed. Well, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. So. And I tell people when we're doing training for minister selection, 
See, people have different rules. Some some people, some congregations say, we don't want to talk to any preacher who's employed and happy because we don't want to hurt another church. Yeah. Another philosophy is, why would you want to hire a miserable preacher? <laughs> I don't want to talk to anybody that's not happy. Yeah. And then there's a third says, why don't we just talk to people we think might fit and see who we come up with? And I think the third is the best. And I tell people I'm thankful there was a church in Dalton, Georgia, that was willing to hire a fired preacher. Mm -hmm. We went there, stayed 11 years, raised our children there. That's where our children call home. Jerry Wayne named his first son Dalton. So it's just, it's another one of those hometowns we just value. We built our first house there. And it was just wonderful there. What happened to a house every summer, Jerry? What happened? To a house every summer. Oh. That you're going to build a house every summer. That well, yeah, house. boy, I, I found out. That talent skipped a generation. <laughs> <laughs> My son is excellent in construction and building and sales roofing now. When people have a storm, they can call him and he'll help them get a yeah. roof for price of the deductible. Oh, nice. But my daddy was outstanding. It missed me. Yeah. No, I... I remember Dad looked at me one time after I was having my third or fourth lesson and changing the oil in the car. And he looked a little <laughs> bit disappointed and said, "You know, son, maybe there's some people who just need to pay someone to do this." That's it. <laughs> I got a plumber coming tomorrow afternoon to look at my hot water tank. I, I did a YouTube video on yeah. what I think needs to be done, but I thought if I blow up a house, a plumber bill would be cheap. <laughs> It'd be a whole lot cheaper. <laughs> yeah, there's what I one of the lines that you said when you talked about Gail's story was it would be a shame to waste all that pain. Yes. And one of the things that I have loved about you and respected about you is you have taken that sentence incredibly seriously. Yes, sir. Um, you yeah. know, the, the, the story you just told me about this church that was incredibly painful experience, what I'm hearing these years later is not bitterness, not here's the things they did wrong. It was here's how I use that pain to learn things. Yep. Uh, all righty. So I leave... I'm an innocent victim. Anybody knows that's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong to do anything like that just off the cuff. It's wrong for one elder to act by himself. You ought to know better and stuff like that. What one elder is not an eldership. One elder is not an eldership. If you're going to do it, don't do it between Bible class and Sunday morning. That just messes, could mess up a sermon. Can I you think. imagine I, what you'd be tempted to say? Yeah. I mean, It'd be real easy for that sermon title to turn into "Screw you," you yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, as I jogged over that for the next eight years, uh, I got to thinking, why in the world would he do something like this? This man was one of the mildest, meekest. One of the best deacons I ever saw in my life. He loved us, loved our kids, and he showed that. I'd preached some sermons that upset some people on church discipline. Okay. And so they started talking to him. And they started having meetings. And if you came to the meeting, you were against Jerry. And a lot of people didn't know their names were on the list. And just a lot of unhealthy things were going on. Why would they come and tell him and not tell me? Mm. And as I reflected on that, I thought of... uh, Two or three reasons. Number one, I did not handle my anger well at that time in my life. 
But one of the ways I dealt with my anger is to preach a a angry sermon about every six months. I'd just get it full up to here, and then I'd tell people they were going to hell. I had a sermon, 10 Reasons to Go to Hell. We try to encourage you to go to heaven, but obviously some of you don't want to do that. Here's 10 reasons for you to come up with the decision that you come up with. And, you know, after a few years, getting two of those a year probably could be a little irritating, be yeah. a bad day to bring a visitor. Yeah. Just mark that on the calendar. <laughs> Preach that one on Memorial Day when nobody's there, you know. Uh, second thing is that at that point in my life, I did not like criticism, and I let people know it. Uh, why would anybody criticize somebody who was, did as good a job as I did and worked as hard as I did? I don't think I ought to have to. What I, the way I want to deal with criticism, I serve under the oversight of our good, godly elders. Yeah. And if you have anything you don't like me, just talk to my good, godly elders about that. And then I wanted my good, godly elders to tell you, Jerry works hard and he's doing a good job and it discourages him when people criticize, so please don't criticize Jerry. Man, that's a neat way. You don't ever have to hear criticism that way. <laughs> so I didn't want criticism and so people didn't do it. And then the third thing is, I did not avail myself of anybody to talk to about my frustrations. I was ashamed to admit that there were things I had no idea what to do and how to handle it because I thought it would show weakness. Mm -hmm. And so it just bottled up inside me. And so I think John Smith was right on target. I had no idea how to handle conflictual situations. So uh, that's what I learned from that. And, you know, again, I think of the, the, the lessons I've heard you teach and preach over the years and how many of the things you have shared that come from that? Oh, yeah. You know, one of my Jerry Barberisms is, I'm going to tell Phil Pistol on you. That's it. That's it. So, And that's not a euphemism for a gun, by the way. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Uh, James Jones was a counselor. He was director of Agape in Atlanta, Georgia. And... There was a Southeastern Biblical Institute before East Tennessee School of Preaching changed their name. It was in Doraville, Georgia. Had some good teachers there. Maurice Lusk, and Gary Hedden, and James Jones was a counseling teacher. And he taught a course in the fall of 1981 on counseling for leaders. And all of our elders went down every Thursday night and took that course. And during that time, he negotiated a contract with them. He said, I have a number of clients in the Chattanooga, North Georgia area, and it'd be a lot handier on them to come to Central in Dalton than to drive to Atlanta. And I think I could pick up some more people I could help. So he had a contract with Central that he would rent our library on Mondays for five hours free counseling to be used at the discretion of the elders. First Sunday, uh, first Monday of 1982, January 1982. He had been talking to people all morning, and I'd been in my study right across from him. And he stepped out, and I stepped out, and he looked at me, very mild mannered man. He said, Jerry, would you like to go have lunch with me today? And I, said, and I lied to him and said, Yes, I would. 
I didn't want to have lunch with him. I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want him asking me any questions. I didn't want him figuring me out. I'd never talked to a counselor before, and I didn't want to start that day. But I went to lunch with him, scared to death. Uh, Sometime later, he said he was scared of me, so we scared of each other. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how often that happens. Uh, But I got to know him, and then he started teaching classes. He taught a semester on counseling for church leaders. He taught a semester on church conflict and how to deal with it. And he taught a semester on uh, grief. He would lecture two hours. We'd do group for an hour, which was really just group counseling. Yeah. Whatever anybody wanted to talk about. He didn't set the agenda. We did. And as we gained trust, we started getting into some pretty deep stuff, which was part of what helped Gail gain the confidence. He's a fellow I could talk to. Uh, so he became our counselor. One of those times, right quick, I'll tell you this, uh, I'd gotten some criticism, pretty stinging criticism on a Sunday. I went in the secretary. I said, James got any time today? He said, he's got an hour or two. I said, I need it. So I went in to him, and I, I, I wanted two things. One was slam dunk. No problem with it. The other one, I doubted if he'd do it, but it wouldn't cost anything to ask him. Yeah. Number one, I wanted him to assure me I was right and they were wrong, and there wasn't any question about that. Second one, he would often come maybe on Sunday night and spend a night, and he'd come to services. And then from time to time, he'd teach a class or a series of classes and got to know a lot of the people there. So I was going to tell on these folks, and I was hoping that he would get around to them sometime, very kindly suggest Jerry does a good job, and he works hard. It really discourages him when people criticize him. Yeah. So I think it would be real loving of you if you wouldn't criticize him anymore. So I went in and told him a story. And he paused and looked at the floor and looked at me and looked at the floor, and he said, Jerry, did it ever occur to you? that not everybody likes Jerry Barber. <laughs> and then I didn't say anything. That had never occurred to me. I mean, why wouldn't they like me? That's right. I'd had a happy childhood. I was an only child and did well with friends in school. and So I didn't say anything. Yeah. Well, he picked it up from there. He said, not everybody likes Jerry Barber. Not everybody has liked Jerry Barber in the past. Not everybody likes Jerry Barber today. Not everybody will like Jerry Barber in the future. That's truth. That's facts. That's reality. That's the way the world operates. Now, he said, you have two choices. Number one, if you'll let people know that you don't like criticism and communicate that to them, not many people will criticize you until they get ready to fire you. Fire me? Man, I'd already been through that little deal before I came to Dalton, Georgia. I didn't like that one. I could hardly wait for number two because that first one wasn't, I I don't want that. (laughs) He said, number two, you can let people know that you're really concerned and would like to hear what they're thinking, and how they're feeling. And if you'll communicate that to them over and over again, both verbally and non-verbally, a few people will tell you how they see it, and some of it will really hurt. But you'll learn things you'll never learn any other way. 
So you just need to decide how you want to handle that. Thank you very much. End of session. That was the day that I was my conversion to criticism. Now I tell people I love criticism. Anybody who finds salmonella in my refrigerator and tells me about it, it's not hurting me, they're helping me. I don't want my wife, kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids getting sick. And so that that's where I got converted to criticism. That's the proverb, just the, the Jerry message version, faithful or the, uh, the wounds of a friend. That's it. Yep, that's it. <clears throat> that's a hard lesson. It is, but man, it is fun. Listen, let me tell you a secret. Don't <laughs> don't let anybody else know this. Okay. Since I've got converted to it, I get less criticism than I ever have. <laughs> Fewer people will criticize you. Yeah. Because some people get a kick out of raising somebody and get them get them aggravated. Yeah. When you say thank you, thank you, I appreciate you. You know, you've really done me a favor. I wonder if there's anything else I've ever done that aggravated you or some other way. Let me get my pen out here. I want to improve any way I can and just keep talking, keep talking, and just let them talk and talk. Thank you, thank you. And, I mean, people do that. Uh, I do a blog. Well, i got two in one a month, so every two weeks a blog comes out. My daughter's real good at that. There are other people. Somebody called up or sent me a message the other day. I had a name of a town misspelled where I'll be speaking in the next year. And I said, man, thank you. That makes me look a lot smarter than I am because it made me look dumb the way I had it spelled. But anyhow, it's that that's one of the things that's just really helpful. So since that time in full-time ministry, I'd have one night a year, what do you, the, what do you think about the preacher night? Oh, boy. So as soon as we said amen, we set the rules, speak one at a time. You speak for you, I'll speak for you, me. Let God speak for God. And uh, I get to preach to you all year long tonight. Tell me any way I can improve personally or as a preacher. Yeah. Who wants to be first? And I said, it's not questions and answers. You tell me, I'll write it down. I promise three things. I'll listen, I'll write it down, and I'll think about it. Yeah. It's been great. Do you get a lot of feedback on those nights? Not a lot, but it's good. And and really, I tell people, I know that some of you may not be comfortable speaking in public, uh, but this is a parable and an illustration of what I'm willing to do. And so you can come and talk to me privately. You can write me a letter. You can give me a phone call. And I want to hear it. If you know any way I can improve, you're doing me a favor. You know, what's so hard about this? We have our ego and our image that gets in the way. We want to be perfect. And this this blasts that. Yep. And then what's difficult is sometimes the people who will give us criticism aren't always the most pleasant people. So it's really easy to dismiss everything a critic says or lump all criticism into the camp of the fault finders and not recognize what you've just said about this is a learning opportunity. And another reason that people do that is that we get defensive and we escalate. Yeah. It takes two to tango. Yeah. And and when somebody does that and you reply with a thank you, I mean, what are they going to do next? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yeah. What do you mean, thank you? I want you to be aggravated. No, I'm not aggravated. You're doing me a favor. Were you where I learned the term non-anxious presence? Could have been. That's Edwin Friedman's deal, Murray Boeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Edwin Friedman said a leader is a non-anxious presence. That person knows where they're going, 
and plans to keep going there until they find a better way. And uh, they will invite other people to travel with them, but uh, they're going to go whether you like it or not. And it doesn't mean that you're not anxious on the inside, but you think about your response. Before you respond. Yeah. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's doing what we need to do even though we're scared to death. Mm -hmm. And, man, that's a good definition of leadership. Yep. It's funny how many things that you have talked about that are just incredibly practical and uh, sometimes we do things silly ways without realizing it. Yep. Uh, you, you've talked before about how well-intended some of our mistakes are. Um, sometimes an eldership thinks they're shielding somebody by taking that criticism. I have made the mistake for some others that I've worked with of, I'll take it for him. Yes. And that sounds so godly and so helpful and so kind. But what you just described is I short-circuited a process. I read a post on Facebook yesterday. A, a preacher on that page had been criticized by his eldership. And uh, they told him that he was acting in a particular way, which was not sinful. It was just regional. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> regional. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, People were making all kinds of jokes about it, but I took some time and, and wrote some thoughts on that. Yeah. And I said, it took me 50 years to get a clause and get a paragraph of my contract which says, all criticism of Jerry Barber goes directly to Jerry Barber and he will welcome it. Jerry Barber does not accept anonymous criticism. And that takes a load off the elders. Man, it sure does, in it? It, I, the anonymous criticism thing, I mean, the joke in ministry, and it's not a joke because it's true, when, when somebody comes to a meeting and says a lot of people are yep. upset, what that means is my wife's upset or her best friend's upset or the three of us are upset. And it puts you in an impossible situation because yep. if I say, well, who are they? Confidential. Yeah. Well, you know, in America, I have a right to confront my accuser. That's it's part it. of our justice system. You know, and I understand, um, I understand even in, in places of, of outright abuse and in crime, there, there are, there are some differences here in some church conflicts versus, I think you hear what I'm saying, but we, we have hid from this, um, you know, we've done the anonymous thing. We've done the unanimous thing. Yep. That sounds so godly to say an eldership must make decisions unanimously. Yep. But, but what happens? Yeah, you told us that those stories, too. That that just means that one person became the dictator. You know, a unanimous decision means any one person can make the decision. Careful, you know. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's, it's so hurtful. And one of the things, and one of the things I put on Facebook to this fellow, just because you have that in your contract doesn't guarantee it. Yeah. Many of the people forget it. I, I think of one of my interims. That first time I've been preaching 50 years and I put that in my contract. They, of course, when you're courting, you'll do anything to get married, you know, <laughs> after honeymoon, you return to normal. So we had that and I'd been there a few months. One of the elders said, Jerry, we've had a few people come up and say, I said, who are, well, I said, okay, I can't listen to that according to my contract. I'd be breaking my contract. I don't accept anonymous criticism. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about that. Well, seemed like that happened a couple of times, and then a few more months came by, and they came up, and they said, Jerry, what would happen 
if when we get a new preacher that not only does he not uh, uh, have anonymous criticism, what happened if we had an agreement that he would not accept criticism about the elders? I said, man, that would be wonderful. And then if you could have another clause that said everybody in the congregation goes by that, you'd be doing what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15. <laughs> what, a, what a crazy concept, right? You know, what if we talked to each Did other? Did you know there's a church in Nashville, Tennessee? It hasn't got the right name on the outside of it. But among other things, you have to sign an agreement that you will not gossip as long as you're a member of that church. Wow. You know, I know we haven't really done membership agreements and things like that. That hasn't been our custom, but... Um, I was visiting with a friend in a different church, and uh, it seemed to me that there was some wisdom of saying, if you're going to be part of this church, I want you to understand what our house rules are. Uh, That's what this church did. I went and visited with them. If you come a member there, if, you, if you're a member here, either by baptism or by changing membership from yeah. another group, we expect you to worship, Christians worship. Number two, we expect you to give financially, Christians give. Number three, we expect you to be in service. You're, we're not here to serve you. You're here to serve others. We'll help you find what your gift is and train you and do whatever we can to help you. And number four, you'll sign an agreement that you'll not gossip. Gossip kills us. Wow. There's some wisdom in that. Yeah. And in the place where they told me you could never grow a church, they're bursting at the seams and going all over the place. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. I think sometimes, again, this is a Matthew opinion, I think sometimes we have set the bar so low yep. that we haven't had standards for ourselves, and that's why we've we struggled. Yep. You know, I think people want to be called to do better. I, I think I want to be called to do better. Uh, yep. I think excellence is fun. It's hard work, but it's fun when you, when you do it. Yeah, you try, you try uh, playing a football team, say just do it any way you want to. Try to be comfortable. Don't get hurt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, just show up on Friday night, and we'll do the best we can. Well, mediocrity is in too many places in our society, in too many churches even, I think, have, have kind of um, kind of suffered from that. Yep. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask this one more time. All right. But getting used to hearing criticism and learning to love criticism, that's hard for people. That's hard for me. Well— the way this fellow explained it to me, he tapped into my form of pain, and if you've had a disease one time and it was devastating, you don't want to catch it again. And he told me, you're either going to change or they'll probably fire you again. And there's the pain of staying the same and the pain of change. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's what that, that got my attention because I'd already had that and never wanted that to happen again. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate it because I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, so many things that you have written about regarding this and other things. One of the things you said is that uh, every time an eldership changes, you resign. Yes, yes. I learned that in 1988. Uh, 1988, really I started in 87, there were some things going on. Nobody owned my case. But it just seemed like it was probably time to move. Yeah. And I thought about it, prayed about it, and... I went to James Jones. James became our counselor. Mm -hmm. I'll connect what you said a, little, a few minutes ago. Uh, he met with our children. He met with us as a family. He just helped us raise our kids. Yeah. Uh, they loved him. 
He died July 2nd, 1995. And after I grieved his loss, I didn't have anybody to talk to. My son had gone through a divorce. He had been home about six months, and he said, Dad, I thought I was going to be able to handle it, but I think I need some help. Gail Napier lived about two houses down in our neighborhood. And I said, Gail, I'd like for you to talk to my son. He said, Jerry, I've, I've, I've resigned from Lipscomb, and uh, uh, I'm not taking any new clients, but I have a young man, Phil Pistol, who's really doing a good job. He'll, he'll do a good job. So Jerry Wayne went to him. And as Jesus said, as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And so I started seeing Phil. In my last several years at Bears Chapel, I went to see him once a month. Mm-hmm. I wasn't disturbed necessarily, but I always had something that I thought I could use some insight. Mm-hmm. And so I kept a Phil pistol list. Mm-hmm. And I would often refer to that and refer to me going to him. I think it was giving people permission. It's not a shame and a sin to go talk to somebody that knows more than you do. And uh, I'd tell people, I said, you know, I pay him the going rate, and I'm also cheap. So if any of you would like to bid, if you'll underbid Phil Pistol, I'll come to you and pay you less than him. (laughs) But here's the deal. you got to be quiet for 50 minutes and not tell me any of your trouble. Let me tell you all of mine and then give me suggestions on how to do it. Never had anybody take me up on that. Funny thing. And then I'd tell people, also, you need to be aware if you aggravate me, I'll tell Phil Pistol on you. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But that advice is why I started seeing Danny Camp at Agape. Yeah. I, I, one of the reasons I chose him is he is an elder in the church, but he's not an elder at the church that employs me. That's it. Um, I thought he understands ministry. Uh, so, you know, most of what we talk about is um, people at Burns. Yep. <laughs> yep. But um, what do you think about this? I, I read this, but I can't figure out what to do with this. Here's this person that I want to strangle. Yep. Can I do that? Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> oh, you can, but you just probably aren't going to like what's going to happen. And um, I think everybody, I don't, we have talked about some hard things, but I don't know that I have ever left not feeling better or having more clarity. Yes. You know? Oh, man, just all kinds of things. I've started workshops, feel, you know, what would you do like this? How can you help people learn this? How can this be illustrated? Uh, and so, my parents and I and Gail were in business together, and Daddy had built apartments and many storage, and when he was 78 years old, he wanted to go back to building houses again. He wanted to build houses for old people who didn't want to go to the rest home. Okay. And so he visited a lot, designed them, and he said, I'd like for Jerry Wayne to come and work with us. Okay. Uh, would you agree with that? We were partners. I said, well, two restrictions. Number one, has to have a contract. Number two, I want us to see Phil Pistol every three months. You and Mother and me and Gail and Jerry Wayne and Terry. And then once a year, I want to bring in Christy, my daughter, Christy and Brian, to see how they feel about us being in business and them not. Yeah. Try to keep family and business separate. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we did that. Okay. It just, I mean, man— he can ask questions that I wouldn't know to ask or be scared to ask. Yeah. And uh, just having, and somebody's trained, somebody's been through a lot of this stuff with a lot of people and seen a lot of things. It's just valuable. Absolutely. Yep. Man. Well, I don't know what, I know you've got a few more stories to tell, but 
what do you want to tell? <laughs> I feel like uh, this is the best hits of Jerry Barber. You well, know? <laughs> We've got whatever time you want to have. So, Okay, I, I, I just, I call it one of the two most fulfilling uh, conversations I've ever had. The first one was uh, when I was talking with a lady years ago who said, Jerry, I'd like to, I'm thinking about killing my husband. Okay. So we'll leave that for another time, and I'm not ready to tell it yet because it's not time. Right. But that was very interesting. and I've used it as an illustration in a sermon many times. It's just powerful. But the second one happened on October 17th of this year. Okay, recent. Yes. No, been, not this year. This is 2024. That is correct. <laughs> there you go. Last year, October 17th. So, as you said, I'm a barefoot runner, 50 degrees and above, barefoot, 49 degrees shoes. I'm getting soft in my old age. <laughs> I used to go colder than that. But uh, I was running six-mile run, about a mile from my house. I'm going down out Charlotte Avenue, just crossed Old Hickory Boulevard, and I topped the hill, and there's an SUV in the turning lane going into a subdivision. I'm 100 yards away, but I keep running, and this person's not turning. And I look both ways, and there's no cars. They're just sitting there. I'm getting closer and getting closer. And as I get pretty close, I know she has a phone up to her ear. And then she motions for me to come over to her. Windows down. She asked me some questions. Number one, she said, sir, do you know where you're going? I said, yes, ma'am. I'm going to 756 Woodland Way. That's where I live. She said, are you lost? I said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. <laughs> I just couldn't help it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You take the preacher out of the church. But, you know. Number three, she says, does anybody know where you are? Yeah. I said, yes. My wife has an iPad, and she follows me on Find My Friends, so she pretty well knows where I am any time. Fourth question, do you need a ride? I said, no, ma'am. I'm getting exercise, and if I got in the car and started riding, I wouldn't be getting exercise anymore. <laughs> so I thought I had her convinced that, you know, I was just out exercising. Yeah. And so I took on off. I'm going on down there, and I go up the hill. There's a traffic light. Turn left. Go down Sawyer Brown. That's Nashville Christian, but I'm going straight, and I'm going to turn in the drive, the the entrance to Woodland Forest where we live. Mm -hmm. So I just keep jogging. And after I go onto the red light, I look to my right, and here's this lady who has had to turn around, and she is coming by and looking at me real close. And I, I, I became a prophet. I said, that lady is going to Western Hills Church of Christ, and she's going to park in their driveway to see if I'm really going to turn off where I said I was. And sure enough, when I got where I could see, there she was, same SUV. So I go over and we chat some more. And I tell her, I said, you know, I've been running 59 years, been running barefoot since March of 2010. And uh, so I thought, yeah, everything's, you know, I, I got her. She understands now. And then she apologizes. Yeah. I said, you have no need to apologize. I said, you are kind. 
And if we had more people like you in the world, we'd have a lot better world. I want to thank you for your kindness and your concern and your following up on that. So I thought, okay, I know I got it now. So I go across the little bridge there, turn left into Woodland Forest, and as I start up the hill, police car pulls up. (laughs) His window's down, and I initiate the conversation. I said, you get a call on me? He said, yeah, in fact, I got two. (laughs) And uh, we chat a minute, and I said, well, I said, you know, I've been doing this since March 2010. Every town, with the exception exception of McMinnville, Tennessee, every town where I've gone after I started running, the police always stopped me. Evidently, there's a, cor- there's a module in their course on what to do when you see Jerry Barber running barefooted. You ask two questions. Number one, they say, sir. And usually with a lot of concern on the sir, do you realize you don't have any shoes on? <laughs> and I just kind of let my lip go real loose. And I said, well, I thought I left something at home. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens next? <laughs> and then the second question is, are you all right? Yeah. And then uh, I give them my elevator speech. My name is Jerry Barber. I'm 78 years old. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been running 59 years. Since March of 2010, I've been running barefooted. And if I felt better when I was 20, I can't remember it. <laughs> That's the last part that might worry him. <laughs> yeah, I want to keep their interest. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so he and I had a good chat. And I noticed his iPad. Yeah. And it has the police report. Yeah. And I said, would you be so kind as to let me have a copy of that police report? So he takes his phone out and takes a picture of it and sends it to me. Here's what it said. Call came in at 938. Male red, red hat, black shirt, red pants, no shoes, running on the side of the road. Complainant advised male said he was lost but is now found and is just exercising. Complainant worried he has dementia and is lost. (laughs) Second call comes in four minutes later, 942. Older male white gray sweatshirt, red sweatpants, running with no shoes, is running away from Old Hickory Boulevard thinks he ran away from assisted living home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. So, uh, a neighbor goes by who lives a couple of houses down from us and waves. The next day I saw him, and I told him, and he just had, he said, let me tell you something else. He said, while you were talking to him, I just came down Charlotte and said there was another police car in the driveway at uh, Western Hills Church. Oh, talking to the lady. Yeah. So that's the second time in my life I've had backup called in on me. <laughs> <laughs> Once was in New Orleans was the first time, and then this one. But I got to thinking about that, and I said, that is amazing how that lady came up with those questions. Mm-hmm. And so I've been asking people questions, and as I— uh, Sunday morning, I gave a 50-minute Bible lesson on this. Do you know where you're going? Paul says, I'm looking forward to those things which are ahead. I'm pressing toward the goal. And this is the first of a year. 
I always like to think the first year, that here's where I want to go this year. Here's what I want to do. I don't have it made yet. There's still growing I need to do. Are you lost? Well, is that repetitive? No. There's been a number of times I knew exactly where I was going, but I was so lost I didn't know how to get on the right road to get there. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you, yeah, I like the question, what on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? You know where you're <laughs> going, but you're doing nothing yeah. to get to get there. Uh, my friend James Jones used to say, the reason some people don't reach their goals, they think about their goals too much. And mm-hmm. I thought, That's, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> but he said they think about being a doctor or a lawyer or a school teacher but then they play video games all night long before the big test and don't think what they need to do the first thing they get up in the morning to get to where they want to eventually get to. So yeah. you can be lost and know where you're going all at the same time. That's uh, does anybody know where you are? That was interesting because December 21st, I got a call about within a few yards of the same place, and it's my wife on the phone. Yeah. And she said, Jerry, are you all right? I said, sure, I'm all right. I said, what, 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 what? She said, well, I've been watching on Find My Friends, and according to this, you hadn't moved in quite a while. Oh, funny. Well, I, I run at Tracemore. It, it is a small section of condominiums, and it's a good place to run. they got sidewalks and traffic sparse and what is is very very slow and so a lot of times i'll do some circles to run out the exact number of miles i'm running that day right so find my friends would tell her uh he's a mile and a quarter from the house and it it keeps showing that up and i thought man that's a good question yeah does anybody know where you are if you're running a race and you hadn't moved lately you got a problem yeah because that's not the way you win races, stay in the same place. <laughs> and if you're at the same place as a parent, as a leader, as a preacher, as a lawyer, or anybody else, if you're doing it the way you've always done I've had p- people tell me, well, I raised all my kids the same. Well, boy, that's I feel sorry for your kids. Yeah. You mean you didn't learn nothing from the first one that you could improve on the second one? And they weren't different human beings? And they weren't different? Acts chapter 6 the first church fuss, the Grecians said, you're not treating our widows right. Yeah. Well, what does a good leader do? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let's go to Kroger. Apostle said, we're not going to Kroger. Yeah. We're not going to the grocery store. You mean you're a Christian man and you're like, no, we're not going to do it. Oh, okay. So they either are too ignorant or they think they're too good to distribute food. No. You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and twice they distributed food to 5,000 men yeah. on one occasion, 4,000 on another. So they weren't too good. They knew how to do it. They knew how to pick up the scraps after the picnic. Yeah. But they said, at this point in our leadership, we're not going to do that. You it's need to pick out seven men to do that. We're going to give ourselves to ministry of the word and prayer. Man. So somebody needs to ask me, do you know where you are? Uh, and help me... Uh, figure that out if I hadn't moved for a long time. And will they come looking for me when they're concerned? Mm -hmm. When our kids were growing up, they had curfews. Mm -hmm. They, and, and generally they were self set. Yeah. When do you plan to be home tonight? Wasn't so much I'm telling you, but I want to know. Yeah. 
and that was days before cell phones and all that. So I want to know when to start looking in the ditches between here and there. Yeah, right. But not only did we do that, when we went somewhere, we told our children when we were going to be home yeah. because I don't want set off in a ditch somewhere all night long before somebody comes to look for me. I want someone to look for me. And the Bible has something to say about that. Uh, Luke 15, mm-hmm. you've got 9,900 sheep, one gets lost, what do you do? You go look for them. Look. If you lose a piece of money, what do you do? Mm. You know what? There's times I've misplaced my credit card. What's the first thing I do? I go looking for my credit card yeah. because people can do a lot of damage with that. Okay, would you do that for a credit card and not do that for a person? Mm. You know, I heard somebody preach that parable recently. Almost every sermon I've heard about the the prodigal son parable has been, look at the love of the father. Yeah. But I heard someone preach, it was almost a little bit of a cynical sermon, uh, but the sermon was, why didn't the father go look? In the first two stories, they searched, uh, why why didn't the father look here? And man, it was, it kind of... I still don't know what I think about it, Jerry, but it's made me think a lot about that parable. Yeah, yeah. I'm not totally sure I've read it right. Yep. i got some ideas about that. We'll do that another time. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the next seven episodes. <laughs> and so a, a good friend or a trustworthy counselor can help to say, have you moved lately? Yeah. Are you still stuck? Do you need a ride? Yeah. Do you think, think about that? If I stop and do that, that man may get mad. He may get defensive. It could be dangerous. You're going to offer a ride to— Is he going to carjack me? Yeah. Are you going to offer a ride to an old man that's crazy out here running that in shoes on? What's he going to do if I let him to the car with me? Yeah. Well, it's only if you think they need assistance, direction, and may be in danger if you don't help and you care enough to risk. Am I a neighbor to those who have been robbed, stripped, beaten, and half dead? I've heard that parable somewhere. Yep, yep. And then another lesson I got from that is compassion is more than feeling sorry. Mm. Compassion is a sympathetic consciousness of others in distress together with the desire to leave it. This lady was concerned about me. She asked questions. She checked to be sure I was telling the truth. Her story matched. And then she watched to see if what I did matched with what I said. She followed up on that. She called the police. And the policeman, Roger Allen, uh, was very complimentary. He said, most of the time we get calls and folks just want us to handle it. said, that lady was going to follow up. She waited until somebody got there. She was going to see that I got home safely. Isn't that powerful? That is so cool. Uh, And one of the great things, when he gave me the police report, there was a name and a phone number right under those two reports, which I assumed was Sally, which is not her real name. Yeah. And last week, I got up the nerve to call her. Yeah. And we had a great conversation. Oh, how cool. Isn't that neat? And I sent her uh, my blog, and I sent her the notes for this. And I'll probably send her a copy of this podcast. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> but she was, I said, where where did you get the concern and compassion to do this? She said, well, I just thought if somebody's in trouble, I needed to help them. That's so cool. Oh, man. She sent me a picture of her and her husband and her two children. And uh, I just have a lot of respect for that lady. Yeah. 
and, and I'm using her as an example. That's what we need to be doing in the church and in our communities. Yeah. When you see somebody. Now, another thing. Is that if we don't tell the truth, people make up their own stories. Mm. Yeah. Now, I can understand why she thought what she did. Yeah. But an observation I made, if you've been driving Charlotte Avenue for the last 35 years, you know the fellow in the red hat and the red pants is a crazy preacher who runs barefooted at 50 degrees and above and waves at everybody coming and going. Yeah. But if you don't know that, I wonder if he has dementia. Yeah. I think he's run away from an assisted living home. Yeah. You fill in the blanks. You fill in the blanks. I got a call the first week of February. I was at Freed Hardeman. An elder I had talked to earlier, they had had a long-term preacher, and then they had had two short, unintentional interims. Gotcha. They had fired the last one. And he said, uh, the members are saying we ought to tell why we fired him. What do you think? I said, I think it's a pretty good idea if you followed the first two steps. Right. I said, it's going to be very embarrassing if you surprised him and never confronted him with what was disappointing you. Yeah. But if, you, if you've done that and he's just rebellious and he's not going to change and you're not going to change, then you need to say he wasn't w willing to work under our direction. Uh, and so we let him yeah. go. If you don't, they're already figuring out which women and how many he's running around with and how much money he stole. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to put that on him. The truth is almost always better. Yep. You know, even if it's a horrible thing. Yep. Yep. That's what Jesus said to do. Yeah. Go, go talk by yourself. That doesn't work. Take one or two more and then tell everybody. Tell the church. Well, he didn't sin. He just aggravated me. Well, sin is missing the mark. Yeah. And if you're missing the mark to the extent it affects your relationship, need to tell it. Yeah, that's fair. I had somebody come up to me Sunday, uh, and he said, um, I think what you said in Sunday school today was true, but it makes me uncomfortable. And I said, good. I'm thankful. <laughs> yeah. And I said, and it's okay that you're uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of pushed some boundaries in this in this class to try to get people to think a little bit. Um and, you know, this person talked about their upbringing and what they believed and why this was hard. Yep. Uh, man, have this conversation all day. Don't have the conversation where you run around the church saying, oh, I think he's gone liberal. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, another one of Edwin Friedman's saying is that a good leader is someone who increases toleration for pain in himself and others. That is so good. Okay, now i got to ask you. We're really going to be here all day. <laughs> but um, tell me why you barefoot run. Okay, good question. Two reasons. Number one, it brings back good childhood memories. I read a blog in the late fall, early winter of 2009 about people who were actually running for exercise barefoot. Mm -hmm. And my mind went back to when I was a boy in Ships Bend, Hickman County, Tennessee, and Mother and I would have this discussion every spring. Mama, I'm ready to start running barefoot or playing barefoot. No, Jerry's too cold. I'm afraid you get a bad cold. We'd have that until finally it got warm enough, and she'd give me permission. I get my feet tough, and the rest of the summer, my parents, I tell, were strict. They made me wear shoes on Sunday morning, but often they let me go barefoot in church on Sunday night, Wednesday <laughs> night. 
And boy, that dust and your toes, and it, it was just freeing. Yeah. And I, I, I got to thinking, if that was fun when I was five years old, why wouldn't it be fun when I'm 65 years old? And I thought, I don't see any, any problem with that. And so during the winter, I read three books, Born to Run by Christopher MacDougall, and then a couple of how-to books, and I devised a plan. Obviously, you don't go out and run 10 miles the first day, so I got a way of gradually working into it. So that's the first reason. It brings back good childhood memories. Number two, it is a good parable for life. People say, Jerry, didn't that hurt? What about glass and rocks? Well, on glass and rocks, what I do is I watch where I'm going. When I see glass and rocks, I run around them. <laughs> I'm not just trying to. <laughs> I'm not trying to hurt. Uh, but yes, it hurts. I've I ran three marathons, but that was pre-barefoot days. But I've run several half marathons barefoot. You run 13.1 miles with no shoes on asphalt and concrete. It'll pretty well scrape all the skin off of you, the bottom of, of the balls of your feet, and you'll have blisters on both heels. Mm -hmm. And it burns all day Saturday. Some on Sunday, but I tell people again by Tuesday, if I felt better when I was 20, I can't remember it. We're not going to accomplish much without pain. If you're going to do just what is most comfortable, you're not going to do anything professionally, as a parent, as a neighbor, as a Christian. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you're going to take up your cross daily and follow me. Yeah, that sounds uncomfortable. So it's 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 a good parable for life. And so some back right before I left Pacific, Missouri, one day I, I hit what I call a pyramid rock. Some pyramids have a square bottom. This one had three. It was three all the way around. And I hit it on the ball of my left foot. And then somewhere during that run, I picked up a splinter on my right foot. Ugh. So I got home, and we can deal with the splinter, Gail. Just takes a needle and digs that out. And, uh, boy, that's painful. Yeah. But when, when I have pain, I do, I, I do a check right quick. I, I, I try to determine is it fatal. If it is, I want to call my wife and kids and tell them goodbye. Yeah. If it's bleeding, I want to head straight home and not do the whole. So far, I've never had that to happen. Uh, so I just keep on running. And uh, so. You told I, me something about pain, that when it's anticipated. Yeah. Pain is helpful when it is anticipated, when it is uh, managed. And what else did I say? In, ending temporary? No. When it is anticipated, when it is chosen, chosen, and when it's managed. And Jesus is an example for that. Matthew sixteen twenty one. From that time, he began to tell his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, be raised again third day. He got him. He knew what was coming. John 10, he says, I laid down my life. Nobody takes it from me. He died when he got ready. Yeah. And even though we can't choose our time, we can choose our attitude toward the pain, criticism and other things. Uh, I didn't change people thinking that I could do a whole lot better. I just changed my attitude on how I was going to respond when people let me know about that. Mm -hmm. And then when it's managed, 
uh, again, that's the reason I run around glass and rocks is to keep, even though there's some pain in it, I don't want to suffer any more than I have to. It's unnecessary pain. Yep. There's a difference between pain that's productive and pain that's just yep. painful. <laughs> Shoey. So how many times have the cops been called on you now? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, several times in Pacific, Missouri. Same two questions. Sir, do you realize you don't have issues? Uh, are you all right? Uh, I was in New Orleans. That's the first time backup was called. I was there in a meeting. Ran on Monday. Police stopped me. Did my elevator speech. Everything's fine. Wednesday, I've run out and I'm coming back to the hotel. Officer approaches me in a car with a light on. He points to the parking lot. We get over and you get pulled over on foot. <laughs> got pulled over, yeah. And uh, he asked me the two questions. And then he said, have you read the book? I said, are you talking about Born to Run by Christopher? Yeah. He said, yeah. He said, you know that tribe he talks about? Christopher MacDougall writes about a tribe in the Copper Basin of Mexico uh, who outrun horses and run a hundred miles at a time yeah. they run either barefooted or in very thin homemade sandals mm -hmm. and he said you know that tribe said i'm from peru and i'm a member of that trial the tribe and so we're having a real good conversation and then here comes a suv car with a lady officer in it with her lights on and she comes up i said i told the man i was talking to i said do you realize that we're about to break a world's record. He said, what do you mean? I said, never in the history of the entire world since creation back in Genesis chapter one. I said, I've been stopped by officers many times. I've never had backup called in on me. But th <laughs> so this is the first time. <laughs> well, I guess you start talking about born to run. They think you're a, they yeah. think you're a threat or something. I don't know. Well, both of them, same thing. Okay. They said they had gotten calls and people said there's an old monk man running down Manhattan Avenue with no shoes and they were th they were concerned that I'd been mugged and so they wanted assistance and I said I appreciate your kindness yeah. that's very thoughtful of you <laughs> that's amazing well, Terry this has been so much fun I, I hope you had half as much fun as I did <laughs> I enjoyed it I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you anytime and I appreciate you Putting up me on those long bicycle rides. Oh, those were so much fun. We need oh, to do that again. Yeah, we do. I, I wonder if that restaurant's closed. We'll have to check out. They had good food. That sure was good. Yeah. Uh, I remember going through those fields trying to find our way back onto the parkway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so cool. Maybe I'll put that picture on this podcast. Uh, there you podcast. go. Yes. That's, uh, that's where that came from. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening today. You know where to find uh, this podcast. If you're new here, uh, it's hard to beat time with Jerry Barber. Uh, but uh, Jerry, what are your websites? Where do people find you? NewShepherdsOrientation.com. His blog is there. His books are referenced there. Yes. Uh, there's links to some of the books that he referred to. Yeah, and a lot of outlines and all kinds of stuff on uh, jerrybarber.com, and that's spelled J-E-R-R-I-E-B-A-R-B-E-R.com, or betweenpreachers.com is the same place. Fantastic. And it has the place there for uh, churches looking for preachers and preachers looking for churches, a lot of tools, and then a lot of resources on sermons that I preach and classes that I teach during interim, such as I want the church to grow, but I don't want any more people. I got about. You can't talk about that when I preach some of that here. Uh, <laughs> I stole it from you. <laughs> I gave you credit, so you're good. Uh, man, there's some fantastic resources, and Jerry, thank you. You've just you've just always been one of my favorite preachers. Thank you. So.
simple you tell the truth and it just makes sense even when it's kind of hard yeah well your mother helped us at west nashville heights getting our secretary up to speed on the computers and helped me and uh she's been still doing that computer stuff good <laughs> <laughs> she she's good she's good well friends thanks again for listening and until next time i can't wait to find out what god is up to in your story thanks for listening to rough drafts be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode While you're at it, help us spread the word by leaving a rating and review. Until next time, let's keep looking for how God writes His love into our stories.